those birds out there, and they weren't doing that a month ago. So uh, that's kind of nice. That's an encouragement. Thank you for the special music. Thanks to each for being here today. I think you should go home and give yourself a star on your calendar today because you made it out on Time Change Sunday. At least you made it out on this Time Change Sunday. The other one's not so hard. This one's a little bit of a challenge. And I sort of think maybe they would do better, don't you, if they would just leave it alone? Choose one of them, I guess. I don't know. Maybe you, maybe you have your preference on that. But uh, we've kind of outgrown the need for it, to be totally truthful with you. Anyway, that's, that was for free. <laughs> Let's open our Bibles again to Mark or Matthew rather, chapter 11. And I want to look at the verse that will be our text verse for today. We'll reread that verse. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into today's message. <coughs> So in Matthew chapter 11, notice with me verse number 3. Let's look at that one again. Look for the question in it. And said unto him. So let's be clear on this. These are the two disciples that John sends to Jesus. So the question really belongs to John, but it's coming through these two intermediaries. And so it says in verse 3, And said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Let's think about those words for just a few moments. Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And putting all of the thoughts together in this, art thou he that should come, and then, or do we look for another, which that second, do we look for another, has the idea of expectation attached to it. Um, I want to just simply paraphrase or rephrase the question this way. Are you the one we thought? Are you the one we thought? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness and your watch care that has been with us this past week. And yet, Lord, has, has already been focused upon several times. We can look around and we're mindful of those that, for whatever reason, didn't make it today. We do know of some, Lord, that are laid aside physically. We think of Francis and we think of Larry. And undoubtedly, uh, there are others that, that are having some challenges physically. And then, Lord, some may be providentially hindered. We don't always know everything that's going on. We think of Connie. But there are ones like that. And, Father, we just pray that you would assure them uh, where they are today, uh, that they couldn't be here, but that you're with them always, and uh, that as they wait upon you and look to you and perhaps uh, have some time, take some time to read their Bible, that you will be near and dear and just encourage each one. And in due course, Lord, soon it would be our prayer that you might restore them to us. We do thank you that Carl's better and can be with us today. And Father, we are just desirous that now as we wait upon you for the blessing of your word, as has already been said, it, it isn't something that we can produce. No matter how much time we spend to prepare, no matter how much experience we have, it doesn't really matter. It all comes down to needing the power of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we understand that. So I pray, Father, that you would forgive me for my sins, give to me that fresh cleansing, and also the ability to focus on the message that's uh, here before us now. Undoubtedly for all of us, Lord, there are always those things that we can be thinking about. There are always those things that await us after church or await us in this new week. But, Lord, we realize that you desire for us to give our hearts to you now so that you might minister, and that's what we truly desire. We know that we're needy. In fact, uh, we understand, Lord, that it's almost certainly true that we're needier than we realize. And so I pray that you will help us today, encourage us, and Father, especially for anybody that might be here today outside of grace, not know Jesus as Savior, Lord, how we pray that uh, we would always uh, 
make the gospel plain when that's necessary and that you would, by the Holy Spirit, draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself. Now help us, we pray. Go with us as we listen. And help me as I speak, Lord, to have warmth and practicality and the power of God will be attached to the words that we hear today as we need them as individuals. Uh, we'll pray these things now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, I want to continue on in the series that I introduced to you last Sunday morning, calling it They Asked Him This. And as I said last Sunday, this is kind of a companion series because on the one hand, we had a little bit of time to talk about penetrating questions of Jesus. It's intriguing. It really is intriguing to look at the questions that Jesus asked people, and we won't go back over that crown now, but we had some time for that and got to see seven or eight or so of those. I didn't count exactly how many we were able to do, but now you come to a complimentary thought because it's as you read the Gospels, you realize that many of those questions, as the sermon title, uh, the sermon series title suggests, were very potent, very powerful, very penetrating. But there's another whole analog to this, the uh, complement to this, is the questions that people address to Jesus. And one of the things that we noticed by way of introduction last week is that, that probably the greatest accumulation of these, the greatest number of these when you search through the Gospels are coming from Jesus' disciples. And I find that, as I'll say uh, once again, that to me is very encouraging because they're just like you and me. They were curious about different things and it's kind of interesting to see that you and I tend to be curious about some of the same things. And every once in a while, you'd have one of them that would articulate a question for the others. The others probably wanted to ask the question, but were afraid to or didn't. And so then we get the benefit of that. And uh, it's a blessing to see what we can learn from those. And then, of course, we have another category of questions that come from Jesus' opponents. Some of those are interesting. A lot of them have to do with the law, that type of thing. We have maybe kind of a third category, at least, that's, I'll just put it this way for now, kind of a, a broader category of what we might say rank-and-file people, just general, ordinary, common people who ask questions of Jesus in the course of life. We're kind of stuck with this one that we have this morning and the one last week because John doesn't really fit rank-and-file. And one of the reasons that John doesn't fit rank-and-file, he, he's not strictly speaking one of the disciples of Jesus, but he doesn't fit rank-and-file either. And, he doesn't fit the common ordinary person quite so much because he really is a one-of-a-kind. He, he is truly a one-off in the Bible um, because he's that figure who is ordained by God and prophesied in the Old Testament to be the forerunner, the messianic forerunner, that person uh, that uh, presaged and preached to prepare people for uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to get just some idea that I'm not just uh, saying these things, look down because we didn't read these verses, but in beginning in verse number 7 and following, you have a whole tribute that Jesus uh, pays um, to, uh, to John the Baptist. And he says this to what we said, For this is he, verse 10, of whom it is written. So he's a, he is a specific prophesied person in the Bible. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. And then he goes on to say a number of other things about John the Baptist. And then he says this. This is a, an extremely important verse from what we might call a dispensational perspective. Look at verse 13. For all the law and the prophets prophesied until John. You probably read that verse a lot of times and don't really think. You, it's just kind of a footnote. And you don't really maybe think about the importance that verse really has in delineating the progression of biblical history and from a 
from a, 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 as I say, a dispensational standpoint because the Old Testament dispensation is coming to a conclusion. John's the last of it. All the law and the prophets prophesied until John. You don't have that after that. You have John then almost being a watershed. He's, 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 he's like he's the end of the old and the beginning of the new. He's a, as I say, he's a one-off. And then Jesus Christ comes and then we are in basically to the, the New Testament time. So it's hard to fit John into one of these categories, but yet we saw a question last week that John asked directly of Jesus, and you are coming to me. And this was uh, Brother Larry, our, our Brother uh, Lee, referred to this in the Sunday School uh, in the opening here this morning where he was talking about this, that, that Matthew's the only gospel that we have this record of this interaction between John and Jesus where when Jesus came to John's baptism, John was a little bit taken back by that and didn't really know that that was the most appropriate thing in the world and made a protest of that to Jesus. And we looked at that question um, and, and you were coming to me last week and, and took from that a lesson in, uh, in the idea of humility. Now, we have another question, and as I said, it comes through the two disciples, but it comes directly from John. And this one is also, I think, something we can draw a really important lesson from. Look at verse 4 again, and Jesus answered and said unto him, I'm sorry, verse 3, and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Does that question strike you, especially if you can remember anything of the message last week, does that question strike you as a little odd? How is it that someone who seemed so certain, because we talked about this a good bit in the message last week, it's the whole, it was the whole basis of John feeling uncomfortable with baptizing Jesus that he recognized him as the Messiah. We won't go over all that ground, but just think of these things. Back in Matthew chapter 3, he, at the end of this, he heard the voice, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Over in John's Gospel, it refers to the fact that John didn't necessarily know who Jesus was to recognize him, but at his baptism, he saw the Holy Spirit uh, descending on him and remaining. And God had told him, upon the one that you see the Holy Ghost descending and remaining, the same as the one who will baptize with the Holy Ghost. And he said, I saw and bore record that this is the Son of God. How does it come about that someone who is so absolutely certain of himself now sends two disciples to ask, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Are you the one we thought? I think, beloved, that this question gives us the opportunity to talk about what really is sort of an age-old problem. Think back to the book of Job if you want to think of an example of this. What do you do when your theology and your circumstances don't quite meet? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Your theology, what you believe about God, but we just sort of use it in a broad sense. What do you do when promises that you know from the Bible, things that you've been taught from childhood about God, and things that you've based your life on, and you've driven these into the, into the ground as tent pegs, so to speak, landmarks. But then your circumstances become doubtful and confusing, and you don't understand why something's happening, and it seems to kind of go counter to that, and I think the operative word in what I just said is, it seems to. But so often, that can become so powerful. Our emotions can, be some, 
can become so strong. Sometimes they can even become tinged. We can have confusion. We can have doubt. We can have anger at what's going on in our lives. It doesn't seem to be what we understood was going to be true. And Job was like that because Job especially had that, that Jewish understanding of things that prosperity meant God's favor. The lack of prosperity signaled that maybe God was displeased. And so Job is a prosperous man. He's introduced to us in the beginning of the book that way. And all of a sudden, it's like the bottom drops out. Everything in his life just goes awry. He loses his children. He loses his possession. His wife is on his case. Then his three friends show up, and they'd have been better to stay home. And it's not going well for Job. So here Job has this belief, has based his life on the fact that God is good, and God is blessing me, so therefore I must be pleasing to God. He's very devout. He's even careful in his own life, but then he's careful for his children. He, he has sacrifices and so forth. Uh, that he's, he's careful to cover his children with his prayers and with his devotion to God and all of this kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, it's just like out of nowhere, and he doesn't know why. Now, you might think you'd be okay with that, but just wait till it hits. Then you find out how human you really are. And to me, I just, I find this encouraging. I think to myself, well, if someone like John the Baptist can turn up with questions, if someone like John the Baptist, who's so certain of what he says about Jesus, gets to the place where circumstances affect him to the point that now he's wavering a little bit, not sure, maybe I had it wrong, confused, uncertain of what thing is, things are going on uh, in his life. Well, I feel a little bit better about sometimes when I have some of those same temptations and meet some of those same circumstances. You could put it a little bit differently. Is You could put it this way. What do we do? Or this age-old problem of when our faith and the facts, that is the circumstances of our life, seem to collide. Can you identify with this? I mean, haven't we all had times in life when it seemed like the bottom dropped out? You lost a loved one. You lost your job. I mean, there's just a ton of things that we can talk about this morning. And again, I have to underscore that I think the operative word there is it can seem that way, and that seeming so can become awfully powerful. It can become a real problem to deal with in our lives. I was laughing a little bit to myself. There are just some of those things that unless you just lose it all, <laughs> you, you think to yourself, I'll, I'll always remember that. And I can remember when I was in graduate school, I had a graduate fellowship, so in other words, or a graduate assistantship, you might call it. So in other words, I was employed by the university to teach for them, and that's what paid my room board and tuition. That's how I put myself through graduate school. And for the first two of those four years, I taught beginning Greek, and the second two of the four years I taught intermediate Greek. And I can't really remember now which one it was. I want to say maybe this was a second year Greek class, an intermediate Greek class, because I can picture the room that I was in. And of course, as was so often the case with something like that subject where you had things you had to memorize. You just, when you're learning a language, there's just a lot of memory work you have to do, right? I mean, there's vocabulary, but there's grammar rules, and there's all kinds of things like this. That, and so we had a quiz, as so often was the case, and 
I got the quiz papers back. Usually, you know, we would just have like a half sheet of paper or something, four or five questions. That you couldn't take up too much time with this, but you had to keep the pressure, you know, on people to, you got to do this homework, you got to do this memory work. And uh, this one guy turned his paper in. Well, after class, um, I was correcting them, and I came across, he'd written Psalm 139, verse 6 at the top. And I didn't recognize what the reference was, so I looked it up. Such knowledge is too high for me. <laughs> it is wonderful. I cannot attain unto it. Well, it sort of reminds me that, you know, that's really kind of a description of God, if you go back to the context of that. God's really too big to get a hold of. I mean, if you think you're going to figure out God, you've got a tiger by the tail. You just aren't going to do that. His wisdom is unsearchable, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 11, and his ways past finding out. The old theologians referred to that as God's inscrutability. There's a word you don't use every day, but that was the word they used for it. God is inscrutable. What does it basically mean? It means that God is pleased to show us some things about himself and reveal some things about himself, and we rejoice in that, and we're glad for that. Other things, he doesn't always see fit to let us know. Because as we heard earlier, it's then that we really grow. It's then that the faith-building moments come. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a weak. I'm, I'm, I'm a wimp on that. I'm not standing in line. I can preach about it. I can tell you how great it is afterwards, but I'm not looking to go through it. Are you? But we all know it comes to us in life. So let's have a look at this because I think that uh, we can be encouraged by this. First of all, we're going to look at John's doubt. Now, I realize that using the word doubt is strong, and some people are put off by that. I think maybe part of the problem with this is, is that sometimes we take some of these figures from the Bible, and not that we shouldn't give them all the credit they're due, but sometimes we take these great figures from the Bible, whether it's Paul, whether it's Moses, or whether it's John the Baptist, we put them up on so high a pedestal that we don't realize that, you know, these folks were human just like we're human. If they weren't, Paul wouldn't have told us about the struggle that he was having in 2 Corinthians 12 with that thorn in the flesh. Listen, when you read that chapter, one of the things you figure out pretty quickly is whatever it was, it got to him. And he prayed. He prayed earnestly about that. He prayed three times, and he had to be satisfied with the answer God told him. God said, I'm not going to take that away. I could. I won't. You have to learn that my grace is sufficient for you. Now, you can sit here this morning and say, yeah, we, we, need, we all need to know that. Yeah, but are you really looking for the experience? See? And so some people maybe are a little put off by the idea of John wavering here just a little bit. Here's some things to think about. Whatever word you choose, I think confusion is a good word, but whatever word you choose, I want you to think about some things that might just make this a little more human for you and make, might make it a little more understandable of the situation that John was in. First of all, could I say this? I think we all understand this. It, it, it hadn't quite turned out how John had thought. In fact, it really hadn't turned out how he preached. Because John announced the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, which was true, but in the same mouthful, he preached about the fact that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Now think about in his mind what he meant by that. He meant that Messiah was here. The Old Testament kingdom was going to be established. He talked about the judgment that was going to ensue. Things are going to be put right. All the wickedness in the earth is going to be dealt with. Things are going to be made right. He talked about the fact whose fan is in his hand. You have to think of the imagery of the threshing floor, blowing away the chaff. He even went so on to say that he's going to 
to, to purge that chaff and it'll be burned with unquenchable fire. So his message was one that was laced with the imagery and the ideas of the Old Testament kingdom. Now he's sitting in a prison cell and it doesn't exactly look like Wright has triumphed, does it? Why is he sitting in the prison cell? He's sitting in the prison cell because he preached. He preached and it didn't really look like Good was triumphing because you had this weak man, Herod, but he was married to the Jezebel of the New Testament, this Herodias. And John was bold enough to say, you know what, you've got your brother's wife. That's not lawful. Well, Herod, I'm sure he didn't think too kindly of that, but Herodias thought even less. That was where the problem came in. And you know, of course, that there he sat in jail. And if you're looking at those cell bars, if he had such that he could look out, you're thinking to yourself, you know, the Messiah, I announced the Messiah coming. And I announced whose fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor and the wheat he will gather into his garner and the chaff he will purge with unquenchable fire. And doesn't look like that's going on out there right now. Do you, do you begin to see how this might work on you a little bit? Did you ever think about how long John was confined? That's kind of an interesting thing to notice. Um, go back to chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 12. So we don't, don't even have to go out of the Gospel of Matthew, but it's easy to go back a few pages, and you'll be able to see something here that really begins to put a face on this, really begins to help us to see, see what's going on in John's mind and how, how that kind of thing can get to you. Chapter 4 and verse 12 now when John had heard that, I'm sorry, now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And then you go on to read the next verses, and leaving Nazareth, he dwelt in Capernaum. In other words, really, the signal for the start of Jesus' ministry was his baptism by John. And then God, in his sovereignty, began to move John off the scene so that we can look back on this and we can kind of discern a little bit of what God was doing in here. But Jesus was really the one who had to kind of enter into the limelight now and this imprisonment took place, roughly speaking, around, and his baptism, roughly speaking, around the time that Jesus began his ministry. Well, now if we go over uh, a little bit later and turn to chapter 14, so that's just a little bit where our text, beyond where our text is, now we read the story as Matthew records it. John, or, or Matthew 14 and 3. And he, for Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Well, see, all of this is taking place as Jesus begins his ministry, but the context that we're at in uh, our text in Matthew chapter 11 is probably a year into Jesus' Galilean ministry. So think about what that would be like. I mean, uh, you know, we live in Huntington, so we go right past, most days go right past the prison. My wife goes by every day, but, um, you know, and there's actually two. Then you have SCI Huntington, which is the old one, and then you have the newer one. It, I mean, it's not that new now, but by comparison to Stalag 13, it, it's newer. Um, the Smithfield, SCI Smithfield. Two maximum security prisons. you have any idea what it's like inside those places? 
you probably don't want to. You can read about those kinds of things. You can read about what it's like in those types of places, or you can read about what it's like in federal prison, but can you imagine being there a year? You imagine the, how the devil could come in and begin to create all kinds of doubts and uncertainties and points of confusion and questions. Why isn't it going how I thought? What is going on? This becomes very understandable. And you're talking about somebody who's now a, a long, long way from the way we picture John, a public ministry, a powerful preaching ministry with hundreds if not thousands of people who flocked to hear his message and that he subsequently baptized, going all the way from that. Can you imagine riding an incredible high, as it were, of, of a, a place of usefulness to God and then just being sidelined for a year in some dark, old, dingy place, not knowing whether the executioner was going to come today or tomorrow. Every day, he didn't know. All he knew was that he was being exposed to the malevolence of this evil woman who wanted to see his life taken. That'd, that'd be hard to, to deal with. There's something else to think about, too, and this is another aspect of how the Jews looked at prophetic things, when, especially the idea of the coming of the Messiah. And I guess the best way to do this and to do it quickly is to turn to John chapter 1, because we read these verses last week, but uh, to make a different point from it right now, the point that I'm trying to make is, you know, tr tr prophecy has always been a little bit of a tricky subject in that it's... I think there's some things you can be definitely sure about, and I think there's some other things that it doesn't necessarily always behoove us to be dogmatic. But in any case, um, when the Jews thought about the coming of Messiah, there was a little bit of room in their thinking actually for multiple figures, not multiple messiahs, but multiple figures that would come on the scene at roughly the same period of time. That's why when this delegation comes to John, look in John 1.19, and they say, who are you? This is the record, verse 19 of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? Well, the first prominent question is, he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. Are you the Messiah? No, I'm not the Messiah. Well, notice their next question. They don't give up because in their thinking, there were other people who might just be coming on the scene at roughly the same time or in connection with the Messiah. And so they went on to say, well, are you Elijah? They got that out of Malachi chapter 4. They were on reasonable ground with that. The disciples had that question later, if you remember. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come, remember? Okay, so they were on solid ground with that question. And he says, no, I'm not alive. Well, are you that prophet? That was another person, because Moses gave that prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Lord shall raise up, raise up a prophet like unto me from among your brethren. They were expecting the, the coming of that particular person too. So... Maybe in their minds there was some confusion. Well, is that prophet the Messiah or is that a separate person? But in their thinking, so why do I say all this? Because it would be possible for John now, struggling with this, to wonder, well, is there any chance that I got it wrong? Is there any chance that maybe Jesus was... Are, are you the one that we look for? Or should we look for another? He hasn't forsaken his faith. He hasn't given up on his faith. He's just confused and struggling. 
Also, take note of the fact that John is the one who sent. If you're struggling with this idea of wondering, could John really have kind of had these kinds of struggles for as prominent and godly a person as he was and a preacher like he was, realize John's the one who sent the question. It wasn't the disciples that were bugging John and saying, what's going on? It was John. We're told that directly in our text. So if you look back there in Matthew chapter 11, it says, now when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. And when Jesus answered in verse 4, he said unto them, go and show John. No, this is all coming from John. This is John's question. His disciples may have wondered too if they were following his message. They may have shared some of his confusion. They may have, but this is coming from John. And so that's the reason for the question. John, John is simply grappling with confusion and doubt. He hasn't renounced his faith. It's simply a matter of struggling to resolve what he sees versus what he thought. And that can be a real struggle sometimes. And that's the reason for the question. Are you the coming one? That's the way you would render this literally. Um, verse number three where the question is, uh, to verse number three, Art thou he that should come? Are you the coming one? The coming one was a messianic title. And that was very clear to the Jews what that meant. Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for, should we expect someone else? And it just doesn't seem possible that John could be asking this question until you really begin to think about how often you and I do the very same thing. We get into a bad fix and we just can't believe that this is going to work out and we start to pout and complain or whatever else, doubt and confused and then God answers that prayer and we're back at church the next time to give a testimony about how good God is and a week later we're, <laughs> you know, we've forgotten that and we're, we're battling with the next thing. So as I say, I think some of the problem is, is, is putting these people on a pedestal where we don't realize they grappled with the same things that we do. To me, this is the encouragement in this, that, that we have this revealed, that John went through this. For people who can't accept that John might have had those points of confusion, maybe even doubt, and maybe even struggle, I guess, again, to rephrase what I've been trying to say is, I have to ask, which one of us hasn't been there? sort of a similar story to the one I told you at the beginning of the message. There's a man by the name of William Phelps. He taught English Lit. Some of you can remember that from school. English literature at, at Yale for over 40 years. So before Christmas, on towards the end of the semester, back in those days, you know, you went after Christmas, but, so, but still, on towards the end of the semester, he had uh, given an examination paper out to the students that he had. And uh, so he was grading the papers, um, and he saw where one student had written on his paper next to a question, God only knows the answer to this question. Merry Christmas. When Phelps graded the paper, he wrote another comment. God gets an A, you get an F. Happy New Year. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something, folks. Lots of times you and I are getting Fs. That's 
kind of the point, see? And it, it's, I think it's being humble enough to admit it of yourself and then realizing that, you know what? John wasn't exempt from the same kinds of struggles, trials, and difficulties. Let's see, though, about how Jesus responded to this, because I want to wrap this up. So if we have John's doubt, in what follows in verses 4 through 6, we have Jesus' declaration. It's kind of interesting, and we won't take a lot of time with it. It's kind of interesting Jesus doesn't answer with a yes or no. And probably there were, again, reasons for that. Maybe Jesus didn't want that kind of a public declaration. There were many times when Jesus especially with multitudes around, didn't necessarily want to bring that attention at that particular moment. I sometimes wonder if that would have been sufficient for John, if that's what he really needed. It's just think about that for a minute, because he's already struggling with uncertainty, confusion, and doubt. So he sends to Jesus and says, are you the one we were looking for, or should we be expecting someone else? And, and the disciples said, well, he said, tell you, yes, he is. And I, I kind of really think that this is the Lord's um, compassion. He knows where we are. He knows what we need. He knows best how to meet that need. That he doesn't do that. Instead, he does something very different. So what is it that he does? Look at verse 4. Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. Now that's interesting because Jesus is not just saying, it, we have this little clarification from Luke, Luke's account. Jesus is not just saying the things you've been hearing that I was doing. Like it starts off the chapter by saying, John's in prison and he hears the works of Christ. You see that verse 2? His Galilean ministry was going on and these reports were coming in to John, though he was in prison, of all these wonderful works that Jesus was doing. No, he doesn't do that. He could have done that. The point would have been the same, but it's laced with another layer of compassion, and we find that described in Luke chapter 7. So if you don't mind holding your fingers here, let's, let's look at this, because this is kind of a neat detail, how the Lord just goes the second mile, so to speak. In Luke chapter 7, when we read there, verse number 21, And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, go your way and tell John. So in other words, he didn't just say, oh, just go back and tell John, what did he, what's he been hearing? It's true. No, he actually continued on in that day of ministry and healed many people, performed many other miracles while they could be right there to watch it and see it with their own eyes and ears. And then said, now go back and tell him everything he said was, everything he heard is true. You saw it. Why was that significant? Why would that mean something? Because these were all the expectations. These were all signs that were indicative of the Messiah. And we have this from the Old Testament. Keep your fingers once again. And let's look at a couple of places. We won't do a lot. But turn to the book of Isaiah. Every Christmas time, if you listen to Handel's Messiah, you hear this. Isaiah chapter 35. You see, you hear it. Maybe you don't even recognize or where it comes from. You're going to see it now. And it's, it's meant to be an encouragement, just like it is here. Look at verse 3. Strengthen ye, Isaiah 35, strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful, fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. 
with vengeance. John was kind of looking for the vengeance part. Even God with a recompense, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart and the tongue of the dumb sing for in the wilderness waters break out and streams in the desert. They all accepted that this was, and now you want one stronger. Still in Isaiah, go to 61. Go to chapter 61. This one is kind of the really important one in the light of something else we find in the New Testament. So as you hear this scripture, I want you to think of a time right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that he went to the synagogue at Nazareth and there was given to him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah to read. Do you remember what it says? He opened it and found the place where it is written. It's what we know as Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Let's go to that Luke 4 because he says something about that. Jesus says something about that scripture. Luke chapter 4. We'll start with verse 17. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because... He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. He didn't talk about vengeance because that's next time. Talk about having extreme accuracy in what you're doing talking about sometimes how tricky biblical prophecy can be to unravel. It's all given in one mouthful, but it stops right there insofar as the first coming of Christ is concerned. He closed the book, gave it again to the minister, and sat down, and all the eyes of them were fastened upon him, and he began to say, and here's the bell ringer, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. This Old Testament person, the Messiah, the one that the Spirit of God would anoint to preach the gospel and to do these marvelous works. He said, today this is fulfilled in your ears. I'm that person. What does he tell John's disciples? You've been here with me for the whole afternoon and you've gotten to see exactly what those prophecies are talking about. Go back and tell John, it's not just what he heard. It's not just the reports he got from my Galilean ministry to the point of today, go back and tell him you saw it with your own eyes. So what is Jesus doing? Saying walk by sight, not by faith? No, he's not doing that in, at all. In fact, it's, it's almost kind of the opposite of that. He's just giving them something to buttress their faith by saying, see what you see really does match up with my word. Which is the whole lesson of this. The confusion can sometimes become so strong. The doubts can sometimes overwhelm us. Our emotions can lead us in a lot of different directions when what we see doesn't seem to line up. The operative word is it doesn't seem to. 
But he sends him back and says, it does. You preached that I was the Messiah. What's the Bible say? You saw it with your own eyes. It, it takes us back again. What I talked about earlier, those tent pegs we nail down, they come from the truths of God's word. It really is true. No matter what comes into your life, no matter how often the devil tries to distort that, no matter how many times the devil unleashes circumstances on us, which we realize he was kind of the one doing all this, although with God's permission in Job's life, to bring this man down, no matter how many times those things happen, God's word's still true. The only thing that can really bridge the gap between when theology and faith don't seem to meet is faith. It's, it's faith in God's word. God doesn't lie. It, somewhere in there, it's true. And you know, that's the wonderful thing about biblical archaeology and all these different things. People come along and they say, well, you know, how can this or that? And then every so often you read about this great discovery that proves this. Yeah, for, for the longest time, people said, oh, who is Pilate? There's no such figure, Pilate. And all of a sudden, they're excavating in Capernaum and they dig up something with his name right on it, Pontius Pilatus. I've seen it. I've been there and seen it. About several months ago, there was another article, another discovery that they found in a different place that had Pilate's name on it. No, Pilate really was a historical figure because Jesus is a historical figure. And we might not have all the answers right now. We might not have all the proof right now. But brother, I'm telling you, sooner or later, all of that's going to be shown to be as true as John 3.16. So we learned some vital lessons from this, and we just encapsulate them by asking a question, making a point. You have to ask yourself, I think this is something vital to learn. When I'm going through, I have, I'm not telling you, I'm telling me. When you're going through these types of circumstances, does what you see really conflict with your faith, or does it just seem that way? Because, see, the devil is the great distorter. He's the one who tries to make the leap between what you see and the connection between. That's what he did in the garden. It all started right there. No, God isn't good. He's not withholding the tree from you because he's good. He's withholding the tree from you because he's not good. He just knows that you'll be like him if you eat that, and he's trying to keep that from you. What did he do? He took God's word and distorted it in the mind of this woman until her mind began to play games with her. It's happened to a lot of people, so if it's a struggle for you, you've got a lot of company. We, but we have to force ourselves, is, is what's going on in my life really a contradiction of my faith, or is it just a contradiction of what I thought it was going to be, or am I just being tricked into being confused by my emotions? Am I so preoccupied with the hurt and the wrong and, and what I don't understand that I'm surrendering truths that I've known from the beginning that God doesn't lie. He might not show me everything he's doing, but at one of the most foundational things you ever know to be true about God is, for the Lord is good. His mercy, that is his steadfast love, endures forever. And his truth endures to all generations. His faithfulness endures to all generations. One of these times, I have it written down, I'm going to preach a sermon on that, and I'm going to call it Pillars of Praise. 
You want something to praise God for? There you are, pillars of praise. For the Lord is good. That's a praise. Our God is good. For the Lord is good. His mercy. What's it say? Huh? Yeah. His mercy, his steadfast love. He's not going to, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. His faithfulness, his steadfast love. His truth or faithfulness endures to all generations. He's the same. In every generation, his truth is always there. He never reneges on it. He never goes back on it. Pillars of praise. Then I think we have to just realize this too. There are lots of people who let this problem trip them up. So don't feel bad if it's tripped you up and don't feel bad if you're having troubles with it right now. But try not to be one of them because you know something, faith is its own reward. That's what the last verse of this passage that we read, he says, and go back and tell him this too. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. He pronounces a beatitude. A beatitude on every person who doesn't let this problem trip him up because that's what a stumbling block is. That's what this offended is. It's a stumbling block. It's something you let trip you up. It's something you let trick you into surrendering your faith, losing your victory. There's a blessing to the person who holds steadfast to his faith and to his belief in God. I think there's some additional encouragement in noting the steps that John took. He wrestled, nothing wrong with that. We all wrestle. He prayed. How do we know he prayed? Because he sent those people to ask Jesus. It's the same thing as a prayer. He asked Jesus a question. That's the same thing as a prayer, right? Don't be afraid to do that. Don't be afraid to pour out your heart to God and tell him, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't, what's going on? I need help. And he was encouraged because Jesus sent that beatitude back. Hey, you keep looking up. Don't give up on your faith. Their faith is its own reward. I read a story that was from earlier days, of course, in the West, when so much of what was carried was carried with train, uh, well, trains maybe, but I'm talking about uh, wagons and horses. And there was a man who was relatively new uh, and he got to the Mississippi River, and he, he, I mean, he didn't have much experience in the West. He got to the Mississippi River, and he didn't know what to do because there was no bridge there. Thankfully, he thought to himself, at least it was cold enough that it was sheeted over with ice. He didn't have much experience, and so he kind of got down on his hands and knees, and he just inched along. He wasn't certain, is this thing going to crack any minute? I'm going to fall through. He just didn't have the experience. As he was doing this, inching his way out, he got about halfway out on the ice, and all of a sudden, he heard behind him a racket. He heard a guy singing. He turned around and looked, and what was coming up on him at a barreling speed was a wagon drawn by four horses, and it was a load of coal. And the guy was just whistling along with his thing. And here's a guy, down, and I think, beloved, that's where God wants us to be. You know, he wants us. He understands that we start out uncertain of ourselves. We start out inching along because we're not quite certain. Can I really trust these promises? Can I really figure that God's going to? But we grow in grace and we learn through these experiences that know the ice will hold you. God's grace is sufficient. His faithfulness is to all generations. 
I wanted to leave you with the lyrics of a gospel song. I regret that it's not in the songbook or we would certainly sing it this morning. I don't, I don't really understand why it hasn't been included in more songbooks because it's such a powerful message. And I know that when we completed this project at the church in Huntington where we were developing our own chorus book, I made certain this song was put in that songbook. I don't know if you'll remember it by its title and have the melody go through your mind or not, but a man by the nor name of Norman Clayton, Norman J. Clayton, wrote this song, in, or the words at least were copyright, copyrighted in 1938. It's called, If We Could See Beyond Today. When I first discovered this, to me it was such a treasure that I went straight to the copy machine, because it wasn't in our songbook either. I went straight to the copy machine, copied the song, and kept it in the drawer of my desk. Every so often I'd pull it out. Every so often I would tell the story at church. Here are the lyrics. If we could see beyond today as God can see, if all the clouds should roll away, the shadows flee, or present griefs we would not fret, each sorrow we would soon forget, for many joys are waiting yet for you and me. If we could know beyond today as God doth know, why dearest treasures pass away and tears must flow, and why the darkness leads to light, why dreary days will soon grow bright. Someday life's wrongs will be made right. Faith tells us so. If we could see, if we could know, we often say, but God in love a veil doth throw across our way. We cannot see what lies before, and so we cling to him the more. He leads us till his, this life is o'er. Trust and obey. You know the song? It's a fantastic song. You'll find a recording of it from Sacred Men's Services, Sacred, uh, what is it, SMS? Sacred Music, Sacred Music Services, Tim Fisher, and Mac Lynch and those guys are singing this song. It's a beautiful recording of it. The man from behind was coming with a song. Doubt robs us of our song, but faith keeps that song in our hearts and minds. Here's another little thought. Faith came singing into my room, and other guests took flight. Fear and anxiety, grief and gloom sped out into the night. I wondered that such peace could be. Remember, faith is its own reward. I wondered that such peace could be, but faith said gently, don't you see? They really cannot live with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your patience with us. We realize, Lord, that so often we 